Ramble. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Bada bing, bada boo. Welcome to this week's mini-sode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue. And it was a quiet, peaceful night in this particular street in Seoul, South Korea. Everyone was in their homes, watching TV, doing homework. I mean, imagine after a long day of work, you're cleaning up, you're putting things away. It's almost still outside. But if you looked closely, you would see a lone figure laying on the sidewalk, laying on her back, blood dripping. It was almost this eerie calm before the storm. Eventually, enough neighbors noticed an ambulance was rushed to the scenes, sirens blaring, police show up, news stations show up. There were so many questions that would grip the nation in this case. For example, why did this young mother, this young wife, seemingly so happy with so much to look forward to, why did she take her own life? I mean, there were so many reasons why suicide just did not make logical sense. Not just that she had a great life, but the fact that You know, just evidence-wise, why did she fall diagonally? Why was she on her back? Why was the window so small? All of these things are quite puzzling. But more questions start to linger in people's minds. Why was her entire back tattooed with sexually derogatory statements, such as, I will not even look at another man? I mean, her entire back was covered in these types of sayings, as if she was property to some man, as if she was just a belonging. Even more questions arose when this seemed closely intertwined and connected to the mysterious suicide of her father-in-law weeks later. And then a 14-year-old girl's body was found in a suitcase. All of these little things are going to be connected in this giant web of lies, a web of deceit, a web of death. And to make things puzzling, the person at the center of this web of lies was a man that was beloved by the whole nation of South Korea. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com. Now, this is a Korean case. I had my mom help me on this case. She helped include a lot of the Korean sources. And oddly enough, there were actually more Chinese articles on this case than there were English articles. I even had my fiance sister help me with that. We had articles professionally translated. So hopefully this is as in-depth and as thorough as it gets. But please let me know if there's anything, anything at all lost in translation, misinterpreted, or if you know something that I haven't mentioned. So with that being said, let's talk about when the police arrive at the scene of the alleged suicide. Everything felt off about it. It's like they could instantly tell that nothing was as it seemed. The original theory was that Che Mizhan, let's call her Sunny, because you know, Mizhan Sunny, Sunny had jumped from her bathroom window. There was even a suicide note left in her house. It talked in great detail about how her father-in-law was raping her at gunpoint for the past eight years repeatedly. It mentioned how humiliated she felt her entire life, how she just couldn't handle it anymore. She couldn't do it anymore. She was also worried that she was pregnant from the rape of her father-in-law. So this is a tough moment for the police because Sunny and her husband had actually walked into the police station just four days prior. September 1st of 2017, the couple reported to the police about the rape and how Sunny's father-in-law had just been... Doing the most, they couldn't take it anymore. They needed him to face the consequences. They needed justice. And the police are like, well, do you have any evidence? Well, then no, we can't just issue arrest warrants because you're telling us something happened. We need to at least investigate. We need to have irrefutable factual evidence before we can arrest him, before we can get justice. So why don't you guys go home, calm down, take a breather, and we'll start investigating. The second that we find something concrete, we'll arrest him, okay? Don't worry. September 5th, four days later, Sunny went back to the police station to file another complaint. She's asking them, why haven't you guys done anything? I I don't even see you looking for evidence. I don't see you talking to people, talking to neighbors, talking to me, talking to the father-in-law. Do you even care? And she stormed out of there. And the next time officers saw her was when she was laying on her back on the sidewalk. She had seemingly jumped to her death from her bathroom window. 
But there's a couple bizarre things at the scene. It just made everyone, even the police, doubt that she jumped. We'll get into that all later. But first, let's talk about the things found on her body. During the autopsy, the medical examiner found the father-in-law's DNA in Sunny. So this confirms to the police, okay, he actually did these horrendous things to her. She was telling us the truth. But they also found an extremely large wound slash bruise on her chest. Like, it it looked nasty. I don't know how you would naturally get a bruise like that. I don't even know if you could fall in a way where you would get a bruise this big. It looked like someone just kicked her square in the chest. And it was this nasty bruise. There were smaller bruises all over the rest of her body. So was it the father-in-law? They bring in the husband. His name is Lee Young-huk, but we're going to call him Lee, right? Which... You say Lee is E in Korean. Anyway, Lee. So they bring in Lee and they ask him, have you seen the bruises on your wife? Because this is your wife. I mean, she's probably had this for a couple days. Mm -hmm. It's not from the fall. Like, we know that. And if so, why didn't you do anything about it? Was it your father-in-law that was beating her? You just sat there and took it? Well, actually, please, the bruises are, um, those are from me. Let me explain, officer. That day- My wife and I got into an argument. She just wouldn't stop talking about how my dad had raped her and how horrified and worried that she was that she was pregnant. I started to get frustrated because it was all that she could talk about. So I, um, in the heat of the moment, I grabbed a can of insect spray and I, like one of those aerosol cans, Uh and I started beating my wife with it. Which is why she has so many bruises, and I think I was just really stressed at the whole situation. I mean, it's very hard to hear what my dad did to her, and it was obviously in the passion of the moment. Anyway, I was able to calm myself down, and I tried to help her with the bruising, but she didn't want my help. So she went into the bathroom, and shortly after, I heard her fall to the ground from the window. She had jumped. What? So he confessed to beating the wife moments before she jumped out the window? Yeah. And he was like, it's not my fault. It was the heat of the moment. Because do you know how hard it is for me to know that my dad raped my wife? So he's not on wife's side. He's not saying, oh, my God, my father-in-law. No, he is. But he just he's claiming like, oh, my God, I was so distraught. And I'm on my wife's side. But she wouldn't stop talking about it. And I was just so angry. I needed to let out my anger. (laughs) Like, obviously, his thinking is twisted. And it's really sinister and dark. And I want to punch this guy. But that's kind of how he's trying to phrase it to the police. Okay. She just wouldn't stop talking about it. It was a couple's argument. I mean, I'm telling her, obviously, I'm on your side. But she just kept complaining and complaining about how she was raped. Yeah, that's kind of how he's phrasing it. So from the despair of having a selfish, abusive, toxic husband and a father-in-law who had traumatized her for eight years straight and the police doing nothing to stop either of them, maybe Sunny did feel the overwhelming, crushing feeling of just despair and hopelessness. Maybe she did take her own life. It does make sense. But the police weren't buying it still. And not just because they didn't want to feel like they had blood on their hands, but for other reasons. Let's talk about the suicide letter that was left. It was just a bit odd. Maybe because it wasn't handwritten. It was rather typed out on a standard sheet of printer paper. So it's really not. And yes, it talked about why she might have taken her life. But the whole wording, the whole format, the suicide note sounded less like a typical suicide note and more like a formal complaint. It was like a list of grievances. And they just hadn't seen this before. You know, when you... If you were to ever be in that moment, it's a very emotional moment. It's not one where you're listing out A, B, C, and D, like a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. That's not what it's going to look like. So the main takeaway is that it was impossible to verify the authenticity of who wrote that letter, or rather who typed the letter. Another thing that the police focused on was the fact that Sunny showed no signs of wanting to take her life before she fell. Apparently, she had bought milk and cigarettes three hours before she was found on the ground. Now, they argued that this meant that she's not planning on taking her life. I don't know how to feel about this one. I believe I read a statistic somewhere that said that most suicides are not planned, actually. They're split-second decisions. But the police added this to their little list of notes. The way that they found Sunny's body was also weird. She was found laying on her back, which typically the cases that they've dealt with where someone jumped off a building or out of a window, they'll typically land on their face. Because think about the logistics. You're leaning out of the window. Maybe you're standing on the ledge of the window and you jump. You're going to land on your face. To land on her back, that means she would have stood backwards, went out of her way to balance backwards on the window ledge and then dropped to her death. It's just not a normal human psychological way of jumping to the ground. Yeah. 
So the police believe she was rather pushed out the window or kicked out the window, which just made more sense to them because she also had so many bruises on her body. Maybe she was in an altercation and then someone threw her out the window. On top of that, there were just a few more things that didn't make sense. The bathroom window was too small to fit a normal adult comfortably. I mean, she would, she could make it, but she'd have to squeeze. It's weird. It would make more sense for Sunny to choose another window because they had other windows in that apartment. And also, like, if you're squeezing out of a small space, you're going to be facing the space. Yeah, not, like you're not going to... Yeah, yes. You can't put your back against a small window and try to squeeze it out. It's exactly. just weird. That is weird. Yeah, why, why would someone do that? Like, it makes no reason. I know. In all of these cases, I get so infuriated because people try to reason and they're like, hey, listen, I know that this goes against everything we know about human psychology, but like, just accept it. Just accept it. Like, there's no way. I mean, she could probably squeeze out of there, but it just made more sense for her to choose another window or head to the rooftop. The theory that someone shoved her through and pushed her through this tight space made a lot more sense. Or maybe she didn't even come out of that window because she didn't land straight down. I mean, this is not a super tall building. I would say like maybe 12 stories max, right? So if you're going to land, you're probably going to land directly under the window. But she was diagonal from the window off to the side. I mean, to me, I don't know. Listen, I don't know physics. I don't know all these things. But people were saying unless she jumped out of a different window or someone pushed her to give her enough momentum, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense that she wouldn't be directly under the window. So why would someone lie about something like that if she jumped out of a different window? Maybe they had an incentive to lie. Maybe the other windows that she could jump out of were not private. Other people were in the room. So the husband is saying she went to the bathroom and I couldn't stop her because I couldn't see her and she had just jumped from the window. So you're thinking what I'm thinking. It's got to be the father-in-law, right? I mean, that's what most people would lean to, but... Sunny's whole family was acting really strange that night. Neighbors reported that Lee and their 14-year-old daughter, so Sunny and Lee have a kid, right? They they didn't even go downstairs to take their mom and wife to the hospital. They weren't even the ones that called 119. Their neighbors did. They just didn't seem to care at all. Neighbors circled around Sunny's body, and that's when Lee rushed down, and Sunny's shirt was lifted above her chest after falling. Again, this is like a really short fall. It's not a it's not a 30-story drop. What? Yeah. So he pulled her shirt down. Okay, maybe that part makes sense because this is your wife. You want her to have some dignity. There's There's male neighbors coming out. There's a bunch of people on the street now. But he also took it upon himself to change his wife's position. Now, the neighbors are reporting that it wasn't delicate. It wasn't like he's in the process of trying to save her, shake her awake. It's not like he was trying to elevate her head, do what he could. Probably wouldn't help, but do what he could as a husband. It wasn't like that at all. In fact, it's almost like he was kind of rearranging her body. Like you would rearrange the pencils on your desk. Almost methodical in a sense. So when the ambulance arrives, Lee's on his phone. He's talking, he's answering calls, and you're like, okay, let's just try to make it make sense. He's probably calling his friends. Maybe he's calling family to rally together and help their kid. Maybe he's alerting Sonny's parents. But it wasn't like that. None of the calls were Sonny-related. It's like he was having a normal afternoon. He was freaking texting or just giggle-gaggling on his phone while the paramedics are performing CPR on his dying wife. Can you imagine being on your phone? Like, I don't even know what you could be looking at in that moment. What's even creepier is that the couple's daughter, her name is Lee Ayun, but we're going to call her Amanda. Amanda, she just, because a lot of people call her A. In Korea, you don't really give, um, like, people that are involved, especially minors, their real names. Just call them A. So Amanda, she was just taking pictures of her mom's body from different angles, like, with zero emotion. Not a single tear, not a single cry for help, nothing just flat. It's like she was a crime scene photographer, but she's the 14-year-old daughter of the woman laying on the sidewalk. That is something else. I've never heard something like that. It's strange. It's almost, it It sends chills down your spine because you can't even imagine it. You're like, that doesn't yeah, make it's like, sense. Am I supposed to be also nonchalant about this if the yeah. families are nonchalant about this? Like, it's, what's going on? It doesn't make any sense. It was so strange. I mean, all the neighbors were feeling creeped out by this situation. Even when the ambulance was rushing to the hospital, the paramedics are like, hey, Lee, hey, Amanda, come on, let's go. We got to go, go, go. We got to go now. Lee's like, well, I don't really want to go. Do I have to go? Like, do I, do you need me for anything? That means he has somewhere else more important to be then. Yeah. 
So they're like,、uh, I guess we don't need you because you're not a doctor and you're completely useless right now. So fine, we don't have time to argue. The ambulance rushes off, but the neighbors see the two of them, Lee and Amanda, just walk back into the building calmly. Like, what the fork was that about? But it doesn't end there. Just six hours later, Lee is seen that morning cleaning the scene of the fall. Like he's removing the police tape, he's wiping away things from the ground. The police had already set up surveillance cameras, and they saw this. They caught all of this, and they're like, "This is this is freaking alarming." He's scrubbing the floor. Yeah, just like wiping small things off. Like he's not down there scrubbing it with bleach intensely, but he's definitely cleaning up the crime scene. Wow! Just in blatant daylight, by the way. So the neighbors who see it, they panic. They call one 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 nine. They're like, I mean, who does this? This is weird. Please help us. We're scared of living here. You need to look into this guy, officer. So now it's getting confusing. Is it the father-in-law? Is it the husband? Is it the daughter? Are they all in on it together? Well, the father-in-law was brought in regardless because his DNA was found in Sunny, and he kept denying. He was like, "I never raped my daughter-in-law. I would never do something like this." But when he was given a polygraph, he failed miserably. So the police are slowly building a case against him, getting ready to arrest him. Listen, I don't know why they didn't arrest him right off the bat. They're just building this case. But October twenty-fifth, like a month later, the father-in-law was found hanging. He had hung himself. Well. It's presumed that he hung himself. He had left a note, and it read, "I'm ashamed of even meeting people. Please, the police, I beg of you, help me clear my name. This is my grievance. Thank you to everyone who has helped me, though. But I'm sorry. I mean, so far this is getting increasingly disturbing and confusing. The police they want to get justice for Sunny, but it's unsettling because now most of everyone involved is just dying. Like there's no evidence. The police felt like they had no choice but to move on. They moved Sunny's body into the funeral home so that her family could put her to rest. Even the funeral home was freaked out because Lee, the husband, would come in and he demanded to have alone time with his wife's body. I mean, they felt like they couldn't say no. This is his wife. That he's the one giving them this, you know.、Um, he's the one bringing the service, I guess. So they leave him alone with her. And what he did was so bizarre and shocking. He set up his phone and started recording himself tidying up his wife's body, like brushing her hair, straightening her clothes, and then he takes this video and he sends it to a ton of TV stations, telling them, "Hey." I'll consent to you airing this like primetime TV if you give me like thirty thousand dollars. Who would take that video? Like, who would want to air that? Yeah, he thought it'd be an amazing news story of how a daughter-in-law was raped by her father-in-law, but the love of the husband lives on. The grief of the husband, the sorrow of the husband of being betrayed by your father in such a such a horrendous way. He was like, "I'll let you air it in exchange for that money because I gotta pay for these funeral expenses." I guess Lee thought it would be a touching, heartbreaking segment, you know. But the news stations—they saw it and they were freaked out. I mean, I imagine it's a bunch of interns taking these submissions in and watching them. I can't even imagine the trauma of just watching something like this. It's so creepy. Lee is hugging the wife's corpse, mumbling strange things while he's cleaning her up. He would whisper, and you could hear it in the video. And he would say things like, "How blessed you are to be served by me like this." Listen,、oh、I don't care if I'm not even sick, and you're rubbing my feet and running around the house, bringing me water. Like that's just what do you mean serving me like this? Like being served by me like that? What? I'm so mind blown. It's giving cult vibes. It's giving misogyny. Okay, so the news stations—they're trying not to use this video, even if it were free. Because it's just creepy. That's not. No one's gonna like this. So Lee decides to take a shorter clip featuring less of his wife's corpse and more of him. It was more of a selfie-style video where he's holding up his phone in the room alone with her, and he's recording a video of himself crying, expressing his undying love for her, kissing a picture of his wife, wiping the tears from his eyes, and he talked about how all he had left in his life now was his daughter. If something were to ever happen to his daughter. His life would be over. That's it. That's all he has left. So he posts this video online, and he wrote this long paragraph about how much he loves his wife, and now he's a widower, and how she was sexually assaulted, and she jumped off the ledge of the building, but she was wearing that ring, her wedding ring, on the day that she jumped to prove that her love for me was undying. And romantically, at the end of it all, 
He included his bank account details in hopes that netizens would make donations to his family during that time. People were moved. Lee looked to be in pain, and it was a pain that most normal people hopefully would never experience firsthand. So they donated, and they moved on. And they really moved on, because shortly after the death of Lee's wife, a brutal homicide was taking all over the news. Early October 2017. So this is prior to the father-in-law committing suicide. This is just right after Sonny is dead. So Mm -hmm. Sonny dies early September, then beginning of October, this event happens, and then end of October, the father-in-law commits suicide, allegedly. Mm -hmm. So October 2017, a young man was walking his dog when he spots this suitcase just there, unattended. You know, TSA is like, wow, you better freak out. So he's like, okay, this is strange, and he's about to walk away, but his dog is standing at attention, barking, barking its head off at this suitcase, just nonstop. He's trying to tug at the suitcase, and of course, the owner is getting curious. What's in the suitcase? So he opens it up. I think it's, uh, I, I want to say this is so traumatic, and I would hope that in that, dis- I don't know if I would do this, but I imagine you can't walk away because it's going to bother you forever. I guess he wasn't expecting something no. crazy in the Exactly. Box. I think most of us would say, I'm sure it's nothing, but if I don't open it, I'm going to be thinking about it for weeks. So he tugs at the suitcase and uh, he opens it up slowly. And the first thing he notices, you guessed it, was the stench. It was awful. His heart started to race and the dog's continuous barking probably didn't help. It was just building all this anxiety. He opened it up fully And inside he sees the decomposing body of a young girl. He fell back. He scrambled to get his phone out to call the police. And when they arrived, they confirmed it was the body of a missing 14-year-old girl who is referred to as Kim. So Kim is brought in to be autopsied. And she had been sexually assaulted and had died from strangulation. But curiously, no semen was found anywhere on her body. Does that mean the killer did a good job? Is he cleaning up all of this evidence? I mean, what kind of person would do this to begin with? So they get to work. The police knew the pressure to solve this case is going to be huge. The whole nation is going to be looking at them of, how did you let this happen? Why are you not solving it? We need justice. So they start by retracing Kim's steps. They find out that after school, she had gone over to a friend's house. Maybe she was killed or kidnapped on the way home. Like, what does her friend know? What time did she leave? Did she say she was meeting up with someone? Some of the younger police officers suggested, well, maybe it wasn't on the way home. I mean, most crimes we deal with aren't random, right? Maybe it has something to do with a friend. Obviously, I don't think a 14-year-old girl killed another 14-year-old girl. But what about the, the, what about the friend's parents? You just never know. We have to investigate everyone involved. The older police officers weren't having it. No way. We know the dad of the friend. He's a widower and he would never do this. Well, I mean, how do you know that he wouldn't do this? I mean, just last month, his wife suspiciously died, no? Yeah, but that was suicide. It was just a little weird. He would never do that to his wife and he would never do this. Besides, they don't call him an angel father for nothing. Angel father? Yeah, that's what Lee is known as amongst the whole nation. You're probably just a little too young to know this. Look him up. You'll see. He's innocent. He's got a heart of gold, in fact. So who the hell is the angel father and why does everyone call Lee that? I mean, so far, I see no reason to think of Lee and the word angel even in the same sentence. The same one that beat his wife with an insect spray because she was emotional about being raped by his dad. You're calling him an angel father? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So Lee is one of those people that seems to have lived about 9,200 different lives. Around 2005, Lee was all over the news 
for very different reasons. He was an idol to the nation, a person who dealt with some of the shittiest cards, but was still so filled with love and positivity. Wives would go home and tell their husbands, you need to be more like the angel father. What's wrong with you? Look at Lee. Have you seen him on the news? And look at you. Moms would wish with the little baby in their belly. I hope my son grows up to be half the man that angel father is. Lee was someone that anyone could feel sympathy for. In 2005, he was only 23 years old. Most guys his age would be out partying, living life to the fullest, just figuring themselves out. But Lee, he had a big, big job on his hands. He had to raise a family. He had to put food on the table. He had to care for his wife and his daughter, and it was this huge responsibility. But on top of that, he suffered from a very rare disease called, and I know I'm going to be saying it wrong, but gigantiform cementoma. So from what I can gather, and if we have any dentists out there, I'm sure you could shed some light on this for me, but it seems to be a genetic dental tumor, and it typically starts off benign, but if you don't do anything about it, it can grow and result in severe disfigurement of the jaw and the face. It seems to be incredibly rare. There's only like a few handful of cases that have been documented really well. It's incredibly difficult to treat. You have to surgically remove the affected bone and then follow up with reconstruction surgery, reconstruction surgery over and over again, which by the way, these reconstructive surgeries, you typically have to have them till you stop growing. So if you start them at five, you're going to need to keep having periodic surgeries till you're 20 something years old. Because it just won't stop like changing it's hard to get the full tumor out right away and as your body grows the jaws expand and the tumors move and it's just it it's really hard it also leads to increased chance of facial deformity chewing disorders and a whole lot of other complications such as pain swelling inability to talk well the surgeries are not easy nor painless i mean you're talking about shaving and recontouring parts of your jaw And a lot of your teeth typically have to be removed in the process of bone reduction. So if you get infections in that area, which are also super easy for people suffering from this condition, you can develop a whole list of symptoms. I mean, you could have nerve damage forever, numbness in the lip. Growing up, Lee struggled with it. He had multiple painful surgeries. And now, although he was healthy, he only had one molar left in his mouth. One teeth, you mean? Yeah, so he was... um, Before he was called the angel father, he was actually called Molar Daddy, which people meant it not in a mean way. You know, they meant it in a very cute way. And Mm. he he marketed himself in a cute way. Yeah. And Lee honestly didn't mind. He seemed to embrace it. So let's talk about Molar Daddy's family. He married his wife, Sunny, and the two of them had their first kid in 2003, a beautiful girl named Amanda. And the three of them, they're ready to start this fresh chapter, live a happy life together. But Lee realized he had passed something on to his daughter, his disease. She was only six months old when she was diagnosed, and they were heartbroken. Amanda's tumor was so large that her mouth couldn't be closed. It seemed like it was a lot worse than Lee's condition when he was of that age. Her face was severely deformed. Not only was she getting bullied relentlessly at school, because yeah, kids are heartless sometimes. She was in pain every waking second. The tumor made her so uncomfortable. It was painful to chew, to swallow, to do anything. And the worst part was that he knew and she knew it was incurable. There was really nothing she could do to make it go away. If she starts the surgery process, which costs a ton of money, she would still have to get surgery after surgery for the first few decades of her life. I mean, this is really hard for the parents too, especially Lee. I mean, he would have gone through it, but he knows how evil kids are in school. He knew the pain. He knew the fact that his daughter was going to suffer the same way that he did. And there was nothing as a parent that he could do to stop it. He almost felt this guilt that he caused her to feel this pain. He felt like it was his responsibility and his fault for passing it down to her. And he took it really tough. He felt like the best way he could help was getting the money to get her those surgeries. But there was this huge problem. He was barely making enough to put food on the table. So he decides to reach out to these news stations. He thought it's gonna hit two birds with one stone. First of all, it's gonna draw attention to his case and get donations for his daughter's surgeries. But if there's enough sympathy, here's the second problem it'll solve. It'll be really hard for his daughter to be bullied at school. I mean, if the whole nation thinks that she's this strong little girl with a whole life ahead of her, they're praising her for being brave and courageous, which she is. I mean, how could kids bully her at school without they themselves feeling like a freaking idiot? So he goes on TV and the first few interviews he does, he couldn't help but cry about the situation. He said, I just 
really don't want my daughter discriminated against. I don't want her laughed at either. And it's just so painful, this feeling. I don't know what to do. The interview featured clips of him comforting his sad daughter. And he would say things like, don't be scared of anything. Daddy's here and I will always be here for you. I'll always be by your side. And once his daughter went to sleep, he would hide in another room and just sob. He didn't want his daughter to know that he was sad. She always thought of him as this confident, optimistic, full of energy dad, and that's what she needed to get better. And the story gained enough traction that the giant Korean media outlet, NBC TV, not to be confused with NBC, <laughs> decided to do a full special on Lee and his family. Not only was the documentary going to bring light to this incredibly rare disease, it was also going to show the emotional raw footage of Lee and his family trying to deal with it. They even gave Lee the chance to appeal to the masses. He said, hello, everyone. My name is Lee Young-hak. Sorry to bother you all, but I have something important to say. And he ended his speech with, I can only give her love because I have no money. I have no money to fix the very disease that I gave her. It was aired prime time. And this is kind of like, you know, when things just all work together in a sense, this was aired during prime dinner time when families would come home from work, get home from school. They're getting dinner ready. They're starting to eat at the table. But it also happened on a very cold winter night. So nobody wanted to go out to eat. Nobody wanted to go get takeout. Nobody wanted to leave the house. And it seemed like almost overnight, everyone in South Korea knew about Molar Daddy and his family's struggle, and they wanted to help. Like this winter night, they're home. They feel the privilege of having the heaters on, of having food on the table, of being healthy and happy. And they're like, we got to do something. So it went viral. Yeah. So people start donating money, goods, food, anything they could send to this family, they did it. They wanted to help in any way that they could. I mean, everyone was so impressed. First of all, it almost made them look at themselves because, because Lee is 23. He's young, but so mature, and he's putting his family first. He was this warm father that he had already gone through so much struggle in his own life. And now, now look at him. He, he has nothing but endless love and, and hope. And because of the generous donations from the public, Amanda had the opportunity of undergoing the surgeries to treat her illness. But the doctor warned the family, there's going to be more surgeries, there's going to be a lot more, and they're going to cost a bit more money. So healthcare in Korea is actually really affordable. But I think for these rare types, you're going to need a lot of specialists, you're going to do a lot of more risky surgeries, it's going to be more costly. So Lee starts going on more TV shows, more news stations, appealing to the public. Please help me help my daughter. He started cycling around town with this 30 pound flyer, like giant flyer, like a billboard on a bike. And he would just cycle around to raise awareness. At one point, he even flew to America, to California. I don't know exactly where, but they said a Korean community. So I'm wondering if it was L.A. or somewhere in Orange County. And he would get donations there, which at first, I mean, it was this sad story but it almost became this moving, almost inspirational story very quickly of this man who would stop at nothing for his family. He was so committed. He was so determined. He was so optimistic. It moved the public. So Lee decided he was going to write an autobiography. It was titled The Happiness of the Father with the Molar. It was released in 2007, and it was a beautifully written book about struggling with this rare disease. He even wrote about how much his wife meant to him. He said, meeting my wife is the first happiness I, I ever felt in life. Getting my daughter was the second happiness. And now everything I do is for my daughter. But I believe that any father would do this, because this is what a father's love is to his child. He thanked the public for their support and said it was because of them that he doesn't give up hope. And he hopes the public will do the same thing. Never give up. Was that actually him? Is, is he actually a really nice guy who just loves the family and doing all these for the family? Or Let's see. So very quickly, his book rises to the top of the charts. It was the top of annual bestsellers. And that's when people started calling him, instead of Molar Daddy, Angel Father. There was even a survey done by one of those goofy websites and it was surveying how many women wanted to date Lee or have a partner like Lee. And majority of women said they would rather choose someone like Lee than a guy that just walked out of a K-drama. Because let's be real, K-drama guys are very attractive. They're tall, they're handsome, they're very well off, you know. But Lee was, wasn't any of those. He wasn't that tall. He wasn't that conventionally attractive. He didn't have money. But at one point, he almost became the epitome of the dream guy in Korea. 
Just someone who's so dedicated to you and your kid. Someone who's not embarrassed to step out and ask for help. So during that time span, Lee raised over 1 million US dollars, which is a lot of money. And he even received some government funding for his daughter's operations. And it was just a magical story, one that would be passed down forever. A story about a father's undying love and his determination and his hope. And then that was it. You know, the world is going to move on. They're going to get angry at some celebrities. It's going to be K-pop in the news. Like it's, you know, politics is going to be taking over. And slowly but surely... Muller Daddy is gradually going to fade from the public eye, but he had left this big impact on everyone. So that's kind of the takeaway. But there were things about the angel father that the camera didn't catch. So what was his childhood like? What was Muller Daddy doing? Like, what was the impact of this disease on him? Did his parents fight this hard for him too? Well, maybe they didn't have to because Lee was born into a very wealthy family. He was the second son of a family, which was a nice thing back then. Because if you were born into a wealthy family as the first son, it was a lot of pressure because you just have this pressure to take over the business. You were the heir. But the second son, I mean, you still had to get your shit together, but you could afford to cruise on a little more, cruise on by. Now, Lee didn't have it too easy, though. He couldn't really cruise. Because at nine years old, he was diagnosed with his disease and his entire life changed. As he got older, his disease got worse and his face started to deform and swell. Essentially, the bottom of your face swells a lot. And the one biggest bullying insult that they would get is, and and I'm not calling them this, is this is what's online. They would say, you look like a hippopotamus. Now, Lee, thankfully, his parents had a ton of money. So they could easily afford to have the top level medical care for their son. After about five surgeries, Lee's tumor was removed, but only one molar remained in his entire mouth. And the bullying still happened, but it was a lot less frequent because after his surgeries, I mean, from the outside, his appearance went back to quote unquote normal. I swear, people are so heartless. So Lee's classmates remember that after he recovered from his disease, I mean, during all of this, understandably, he wasn't the smartest kid in school. He wasn't the most hardworking. He just had this thing about him, though. He freaking loved to spend money. He loved showing it off. He would invite friends to bars and like entertainment centers, essentially like where kids go to hang out, like karaoke bars, the arcades. And he would show off to people who didn't even care about him. He would blow through about 10,000 US dollars in a single day at a single place and not even be phased. So they're that wealthy. They're really wealthy. Okay. So why is he begging for money? Exactly. Like, how do you even have access to that kind of money at that age? Yeah. When his parents would check their statements and realize he's going through so much money, they would cut him off and Lee would retaliate by gathering all the valuables in the house. I'm talking home appliances, their piano, their grand piano, and he would sell it and he would use that money to have fun. In addition to his great spending habit, someone called Dave Ramsey, okay? I'm just kidding. No, but really. But in addition to all of that, Lee really did not like women. Yeah, he was one of those men that liked women but really hated women. Do you know what I mean? So he just thought they, they were prey, something to chase after and gain power over, almost like a game. Yeah, great guy. So during middle school once, Lee was heard by teachers bragging about how he had just raped a first grader. What do you mean first grader? So Lee was in middle school and he raped a first grade girl. Like a six, seven year old? Yeah. And he had blood on his clothes and the teachers are pulling him aside, questioning him. (laughs) Why did you just say that? That was a joke, right? Like you don't actually mean that, right? And he admitted with pride, no, I raped a first grader. And another boy came forward and said, well, it wasn't just him, teacher. Him and three other friends actually raped the girl together. Even with all this information, all this evidence, the blood, the confession, the witness, the school did nothing because Lee's parents were wealthy. I think things have surely gotten better from this thanks to social media as well. But Korea is definitely one of those places. And I'm Korean, by the way, where if you're rich, you are automatically powerful. It's it's similar to the U.S., but a lot more intense. Like if you have the same amount of money in America and you're considered very, very rich here versus Korea, your treatment in Korea will probably exponentially be better just insanely better because you're rich. I'm sure this term applies everywhere, but um, it's something that my parents always told me. In Korea, it's miserable to be poor. It's miserable, to, it's miserable to be middle class, but it's amazing to be upper class. It's like one of those countries where even the middle class isn't really comfortable. So the kids, they get no punishment for gang raping a first grader. 
Other times, Lee was seen beating up other students. And for this, if any other parent or child complained, Lee's parents would just give Lee a slap on the wrist by taking away his allowance for the week. In fact, Lee shouldn't have even graduated middle school if his dad didn't pay for Lee, bribe Lee's way into graduating. He wouldn't have made it to high school. So that seems to be where the kid's luck ran out, though, because Lee's parents went broke when he went into high school. They lost everything. Mm. I mean, it makes sense if you're letting your kids spend $10,000 a day. Like, you just don't have good money habits. The parents end up getting a divorce. Now Lee's moving in with his mom and his new stepdad in a basement unit apartment. He went from a mansion to a one-bedroom basement underground apartment, and he was miserable. With no silver spoon in his mouth, he was lost in life. So maybe he gets it together. Maybe this is when we see like the hero transformation. He, well, you can't really be a hero after raping a first grader, but you get what I mean. Maybe, not that I'm rooting for this guy, maybe he gets it together, but he doesn't. He never studied. He failed all of his college entrance exams. And after high school, he realizes, I actually need to make money. Like I, I can't just sit here. So he starts working at a local restaurant in order to pay some bills. And he was miserable. That is, till the very day that the restaurant hired a new employee, 14-year-old Sunny. She was a child laborer, and this is super illegal, but now there's two different sources. Some sources say that her parents couldn't afford to put food on the table. They were incredibly abusive. They forced her to work. Some say that her parents were using money to do other things, so they forced her to work to put food on the table. Some people said she ran away at 14. And that's why she was working. Either way, not a good situation, not a good upbringing. So she's working and um, Lee was intrigued. He liked Sunny. She was young. She was pretty. So he raped her. And Sunny was traumatized. She's 14. She has no idea what to do. She felt like she couldn't tell anyone because that would be causing trouble in the workplace. She felt like people would blame her or say that she was backtracking after having sex because she felt guilty now. So now she's lying about it. She was worried that nobody would believe her. So Sunny would just endure the constant rapes of Lee because it happened over and over again. And somehow in all of this, Lee groomed Sunny into thinking that they were in love. So it's a very complicated, traumatic way to start a relationship. But Sunny was 14. She was being manipulated. She just kind of believed, oh, maybe all relationships start off like this. After two years of quote unquote dating, Sunny falls pregnant at 16 years old. She was terrified. She went home with her head hung and she told her parents. And they told her, we're really ashamed of you. Like you're, we're really grossed out by you, but you know what would only make it worse? If you get an abortion. So we need you to marry your groomer, rapist, abuser because he's the father of your child. So the parents practically facilitated the marriage of their 16-year-old daughter. And after they were married, Amanda was born. When Amanda was six months old and Lee found out that she had inherited his genetic condition, he was sad, sure. He, he was sad. But more than that, he was excited. He was happy because he couldn't wait. He looked at the political climate. He looked at the financial climate of the South Korea at the time, the nation at the time. And he knew that everybody's, the, everybody's, uh, the culture of giving was on the up. The culture of charities were on the up. Everybody was feeling more and more sympathetic and everybody was an empath right now. And he couldn't wait because this would be his meal ticket out of poverty and back into that rich lifestyle that he grew up in, the one that he felt he deserved. His daughter was going to be his cash cow. So for the next 10 years, Lee puts on the performance of his life. He became the angelic father. He cried on TV. He wrote a book. He wrote lovingly about his wife and child. He got over a million dollars in donations. He won government grants. But out of that $1 million, it's confirmed that he only used about $8,000 for his daughter and her surgeries, which she did get all of the surgeries that she needed. But because of his government grants, because a lot of hospitals and doctors were willing to, you know, do things at discounted rates for them, the rest was his. It was his spending money. It wasn't for her education. It wasn't for her future. It wasn't for another charitable foundation on research on this genetic condition. No, it was for him. Like he, once he was out of the news, he started to live the upper class life. He would spend about $10,000 every single month alone, not on bills, on fun and shopping. Like that was his spending money. He rented a nice apartment in Gangnam, which is like the Upper East Side or the Beverly Hills of Seoul. 
He spent $40,000 on tattoos alone. He was getting tons of plastic surgery, facial surgeries, just upgrading his whole look. He even got surgery on his penis to make it more aesthetic and potentially what? bigger. But due to complications, it eventually made him impotent. Yeah, oh. so tip for you guys. If you have a working penis and you just want to make it bigger, don't do it. It's not a good payoff. He bought six imported foreign cars, BMWs, Audis, which are very pricey in Korea, like imported cars, foreign cars from Europe, really pricey. He had them modified. He bought luxury items from Gucci, Louis Vuitton, and guns. Guns are incredibly hard to get in South Korea, and subsequently, they're very expensive. Like, it's not like America where you can just walk into Walmart and buy a gun. It's not like that. Most police officers don't have a gun in Korea. Like, you have to be a certain level to have a gun. So now Lee feels like his life is exactly where he wanted it, living the upper class life that he felt he deserved. But there was just something missing. You know, he had the cars, he had the Gangnam apartment, but he didn't have power. And that was equally important to a man like Lee. He opened up a massage parlor in a seedy part of Seoul, and he started throwing out bait, as they call it, on Twitter, on Korean chat forums. He said he was looking to recruit girls ages 14 to 20. He will take these girls in and let them learn a valuable skill such as tattooing. Let them become a tattoo artist, an apprentice, and have them achieve their dreams and goals of being financially independent. He would provide them with rent and food, and a separate bathroom will be used just for the girls. You can easily make as much as $1,000 a month as soon as three to six months from training. Which, by the way, I'm giving you food and rent for training. The first step... Just visit my apartment in Gangnam for an interview of sorts. Only the girls would never leave, okay? He would pretty much hold the girls hostage and force them into sex work. What? Yeah. So he had forced them to work at the massage parlor, not in the sense of like he's chaining them up, but mentally and manipulating them and grooming them into believing that, hey, you just need to do this for like two months and then I'm going to move you to this location where you're going to be a tattoo artist. So he's basically a pimp. Yeah, of underage girls. And once that business was quote unquote tapped out, he started to focus. Uh, he's like a human trafficker. Yeah, like a sex trafficker. Once that business was tapped out, he starts focusing on scaling his business. So he forces his wife, Sunny, into getting a breast augmentation and he forces her into sex work too. She would charge about $100 a session, which to Lee wasn't great, but he would secretly record each session of his wife having sex that she didn't want to have with random men, and he would sell the footage online for secondary profit. This guy's insane. Yeah, like, like truly scum of the world. This guy just really saw his entire family as tools to make money so that he could live the lifestyle that he wanted. He reminds me of the guys, um, and we've talked about this a lot in killers and serial killers, but the ones that will go to like, um, like a fast food place and they eat whatever they want, and their wife and kids are forced to eat just the free bread at Olive Garden. Like, you know those people? What? Like, yeah, there are some people that are so... They don't consider their wife and their kids as extensions of them and their family. So if they go out to eat, they'll get the best of the best, and they're like, no, you guys have to eat this, and it's nothing. Wow, I, I did not know that. At this point in the timeline, Amanda is 14 years old and the family is out of the spotlight. And it's been like a decade since his book has been published. So now he's full on the scummiest, most evil man of Korea, but nobody knows. They just remember him as Muller Daddy, the angel father. And that's when Sunny and Lee walk into the police station and report that Lee's father had been raping Sunny for the past eight years now. That anytime Lee went out there for the past eight years to raise money for their daughter, his father would swoop in and assault Sunny. So the police, they have no evidence, so they send the couple off and told them, okay, sit tight, we're going to investigate. But then Sonny's body is found, and the whole thing is just weird. But before they can even get answers, a little girl's body ends up in a suitcase in a brutal, brutal homicide. So the police wonder, is this all connected to the angel father? Because that was the little girl's friend. Kim was visiting Amanda. I mean, that was Amanda's house. So Kim's mom remembered that night. She was in such a panic when Kim didn't come home. She immediately called the police and said, my daughter, my daughter hasn't been home so late before ever. She was at a friend's house and now her phone is off and I think she's in danger. The police nonchalantly told her, eh, well, I'm sure she's going to come home. When she's hungry or cold, that's when kids come home. She is fine. 14 year olds are incredibly rebellious. You know that. Maybe she's just trying to scare you. Maybe she's just meeting up with some boy. Okay, well, officer, can you at least go check the other girl's house? Because that's the last place she was supposed to be. What if she's still there? Nah, we can't really do that. Just relax. She'll come home soon. 
So now that the police find her body, the angel father was the number one suspect. Could it be that someone so loved by the whole nation was a monster rapist and killer this whole time? I mean, the plot sounds like it came straight out of a thriller. Most of the public would have to have an incredibly hard time even believing it. The police needed all the evidence that they could get. So let's talk about the autopsy of 14-year-old Kim. She had died of strangulation. There were marks all around her neck, but it was clear that she was sexually assaulted. Unfortunately, there was no DNA evidence found on her body. So what happened? All of it would slowly be pieced together with text records, phone calls, witness statements, confessions. It's said that after a few days, after Sunny passed, Lee was feeling lonely. His wife was gone. He had nobody to share a bed with. And he was just so sad. So he starts going through pictures of his daughter, which is an incredibly alarming thing to do when you're lonely and wishing for a female companion. And he starts going through his daughter's photos and he spots a young girl and he says, Amanda, come here. Who's this girl in the picture with you? Oh, that's my best friend, Kim. Well, Kim is very pretty. Do you want to live with your best friend, Kim? You know, your mom passed away, so we need a new mom at home. And your classmate, Kim, is young and pretty. And it would be fun for her to be your new mom. Why don't you bring her home and I'll take a look at her? And the daughter was like, great idea. Yeah. Now, this is the alarming thing. Amanda was so groomed for the past 14 years by her own father. Now, I'm not saying she's innocent. I'm saying she's got a lot of her own problems. She's a victim, too, in her own sense. God knows what else has happened to her. And she didn't think any of this was weird. I think that really shows how manipulative and how evil Lee is. To get his daughter to a point where she doesn't even flinch at this idea. You know, in her mind, it kind of made sense. It made sense for her dad to want to marry her friend because now their mom was gone. It all just kind of clicked in her head. She didn't want her dad to be lonely. She loved her dad. Her dad was almost like a god to her. So how could she say no? She starts texting Kim to come over the next day. And Kim is ecstatic. She loves spending time with her friend. So she comes over and Lee offers her a glass of water. A very normal thing to do. She drinks the water. She starts feeling the sleeping pills that Lee had snuck inside, crushed up in the water. And when she passes out, Lee hands his daughter a few bills and says, hey, go play outside for a little while. Don't come home till like 2 p.m. Lee's whole plan was to sexually assault Kim. Let her wake up, let her go back home. Maybe he thought that he could impregnate her like he did Sunny, and the parents would have no option then to to let them get married. Because, you know, social climate. I hate my life. Even though she's... 14 and he's a middle-aged man so that day okay by the way this is like a social climate in the world not just korea korea has gotten better right like it's it was like that here too where abortions and having a baby out of wedlock was seen as like the most evil horrendous thing ever i guess he just thought that kim's parents would do that too so um yeah middle-aged man but that day his impotence got on the way and he couldn't sexually assault her but not wanting to miss this amazing golden opportunity he started to rape her with various different sex toys But unexpectedly, Kim woke up halfway through. She starts looking around and realizes, oh my God, I'm naked in my friend's dad's bed. This is not okay. So she starts screaming, please let me go, please let me go. And Lee thought to himself, okay, well, I can let you go, but then everyone will know that I'm not the angel father. I'll have to go to prison and then I'm not going to have a 14-year-old bride. Okay, so the next best choice was to kill her. He hit her on the head violently and then he grabbed one of his neckties and started strangling her with it. And instead of scrambling to get rid of her body right away, he just hid her in the closet for a while. When his daughter came home, he just told her very casually, hey, I had to kill your best friend because she woke up in the middle of me sexually assaulting her. I hope you don't mind. Amanda didn't freak out. She just took it as fact. Even when Kim's mom called that night to ask where the hell her daughter was, Amanda kept her cool. She never lost her composure, never even showed any emotion, was just like, oh, she left. It was just so easy for her to lie about it. A few days later, Lee had Amanda help him put her friend's body in a black suitcase. Again, everything is said to have been done in an incredibly calm manner. They took the suitcase and drove to Kangwondo. They dropped it off, just left it there. The police got to work, and as of right now, there was no DNA evidence and not much else to work with. They start going through the security footage from the last day that Kim was seen alive. Thankfully, they had that security footage, remember surveillance footage, after Lee's wife died? So they actually had direct view into the building in and outs. And they were able to catch Kim walking into Lee's apartment building And they scanned through weeks of footage and not a single frame showed her ever leaving the building. But you do see Lee and his daughter struggling to fit a big black suitcase into the trunk of their car. They were seen speeding off and they would not be home for a while. 
This was enough for the Seoul police to arrest the two. They rush to the Gangnam apartment, but nobody's there. Okay, that's strange. Where else could they be? They find out that Lee owned two other suburban homes in Seoul, because, you know, he's a millionaire. And the police rush there. They walk into an even more bizarre scene. I mean, this whole case is just something else. When the police get there, both Lee and his daughter seem to be in a deep sleep, like a coma. There was a phone next to them that was open with a video that the police could just press play on. Again, really creepy, terrifying if you think about it. Imagine walking into this eerie scene. Everything's eerily still. The two people that you're about to arrest, they're knocked out in a way that's unnatural. There's a phone open with a video on there. You just have to press play. So the police walk over, they press play, and Lee is recording himself in the car. He's driving and crying, and it's safe to assume that this is after they dumped Kim's body, like right after. And he's begging to his daughter to go with him, commit suicide with him. He keeps saying, honey, I really want to, I really want to go with you. We love each other so much. Only we know how to live. You can hear Amanda sobbing in the background. And strangely enough, he ended the video with something like, okay, thank you, love you. Like he's posting it onto YouTube or something. The whole thing was strange. So the police rushed the two to the hospital and I think it was starting to set in that they weren't drunk or asleep. Like they, they found several bottles of empty sleeping pills scattered on the floor. The two were rushed to the hospital and uh, they recovered really quickly. They, they did not consume nearly enough to even really damage their system or to kill them, which was suspicious for the police because there were a lot of empty bottles. But they you're fine. On, they staged that, maybe. Seems like it. No, wouldn't put it past this dude. Exactly. All he does is just manipulate. Yeah, stage things. Yeah. I wouldn't call him smart, but he does seem to be able to play into people's emotions really well. But I think even then, he's way in over his head now. The police, they're wasting no time. They bring in Lee right after he's recovered. And they're like, we got questions for you. Like a lot. Why did you dump Kim's body? And he admits to it. He says, yeah, I did dump her body, but I didn't kill her. Listen, you have to believe me. I know it's going to sound crazy. I know it's going to sound like it's impossible. But just bear with me. So you know how my wife died, right? Well, I know, super, super suspicious. Sure, I beat her, but that's not the point. Focus on me. The story is about me, right? Anyway, my wife died and I was depressed. Like I was unmotivated to even want to live. I just wanted to go with my wife, to be with her. I wanted to die, honestly. So I was preparing for it. I got a glass of water. I threw in a ton of crushed up sleeping pills and I was gonna drink it and die. But then um, I got distracted. I like went into the bedroom and my daughter had her friend come over and she thought the liquid inside of that water was just vitamin C, like an emergency. And she was like, oh, let me drink some of this. So she took it and she she drank it all and I was in my room at the time I was getting my things in order writing a little note when I get back to the kitchen area I see Kim is on the ground and my water glass is empty and I'm like oh my god no so I start panicking and I have no idea to how to even explain this to the police or to Kim's parents or to anyone and I'm like oh my god I, I was gonna kill myself but then your daughter thought it was freaking power raid so she died instead of me like how can I do that I can't explain that but I can I can put Kim's body in a suitcase and get rid of it so the police are listening to this man and they're shocked, like jaws on the ground practically. It was the dumbest freaking thing that they have ever heard in their life. What are you saying? I mean, her cause of death, there's ligature marks on her neck. We're not even medical examiners and we can see that she died of strangulation just by looking at her. There's traces of tape over her mouth as if someone covered it. She was also sexually assaulted. Your story answers no questions. It's ridiculous. Even the suicide video, the quote unquote suicide video that you took in the car, it sounds like a performance. Like you and Amanda are both making a ton of crying noises, but there's not a lot of actual crying. Maybe they filmed it on purpose to make their story seem more believable. It just wasn't an Oscar winning performance though. The police were not even entertaining this guy. They got a search warrant for his house and that's when they find a lot of things. Ties, a large number of sex toys, secretly filmed sex and rape videos on his computer. He had at least 13 videos of his own wife being forced into sex work with 13 different men, and he was busy posting them and selling them online. One of them was titled, Father-in-Law Sexually Assaults and Rapes Daughter-in-Law. So he's behind all of that. Yeah. So now the police have the proof that Sunny was raped by her father-in-law, but her husband was the one filming it. He's the one that kind of set it up with his dad. So the question is, why did he go to the police with her to report on the father-in-law? I don't know. That was weird. Maybe it's like one of those things where he lied and she's like, oh my God, this happened. You have to report it. 
Oh, he was secretly recording. Yeah. Oh, he was secretly secretly recording. She had no idea. I think that any of those sex acts that she was doing were recorded. Both of these people are disgusting and vile regardless, but the police got the evidence a little too late. Lee later confessed that after Sonny was raped by his dad, she came to Lee and told him everything, like very crying as if, you know, he doesn't know and he's acting shocked. He's like, I totally didn't just record that. You're right. That's crazy. I can't believe that my dad did that. So then he convinced her, his wife, to seduce his dad. So this was a chance at him to get another video entitle it like daughter-in-law seduces father-in-law. But he told Sonny, like, I'm going to use this to blackmail him. We can blackmail him for money. We can blackmail him to leave our lives. We can say, if you don't get out of our house, we're going to give this to the police. We're going to show the world. That is so freaking evil. Yeah. So pure evil. Like, imagine being raped by your father-in-law and telling your husband, and he says, well, you have to do it again, and you have to instigate it. I can't even imagine the trauma afterwards. I, I don't know how you would ever recover from something like that. So she was forced yet again to have sex with her father-in-law that Lee secretly recorded. And with all of this evidence, Lee's dad took his own life later. Or did he? I mean, some speculate that Lee killed him so that he couldn't confess to like, oh yeah, my son told me to rape my daughter-in-law. But he was guilty of rape regardless. I mean, are we really shocked though? Because this is the same guy that didn't care to discipline his son when he was found gang raping and beating up like one first graders. So now with this information, they confront Lee again and he confesses to his crimes. And I think this point of all of this, the police were more shocked at Amanda. They knew that Lee was scum. I mean, look at his dad. Look at how he was raised. Look at this guy. But 14-year-old Amanda, anytime the police spoke with her, she was emotionless. It was the only time she really showed any emotion was if the police were saying some shit about her dad. She would get riled up and tell them, my father's not like that. He's a good man. You just don't know him. He has his reasons for everything. She didn't care about anything. Her attitude, her actions, they were all extremely calm. I mean, your dad just killed your best friend, assaulted her, and you helped him get rid of her body, and now you're in jail, and the police are telling you that your dad might have done the same thing to his wife, your mom, and so many other countless girls your age, but this is not a normal Tuesday. Amanda's looking like it's a normal Tuesday. It looks like nothing could possibly pique her interest. She's bored. So the police call in some of the best psychologists to analyze Amanda, and they said Amanda has been mentally manipulated by her father for a very, very long time. Because of her early childhood struggles with her condition, she has almost come to worship her father for saving her. If he told her to jump, she would jump. If he told her to go left, she would not ever even think, if even glancing to see what's on the right side. If she did, he would, she would learn her lesson and to never do it again because her dad would punch and kick her. She did not have a healthy upbringing. There were also some speculations online that were not verified, but there are speculations that he might have sexually abused his daughter as well. I have no idea if these claims are true, but I wouldn't be surprised considering Lee's track record and considering how normalized it was for him to be interested in 14-year-old girls so blatantly in front of his own child. But she did tell friends on occasions she has to rush home because her dad can't fall asleep without her. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that just means he's a dad and he won't sleep till he knows his child is safe at home. Like that's a parent thing, right? It just was an odd thing to say because most kids would say, oh, I got to go home. Like my dad's going to be pissed. So this was like a very, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could kind of argue that any parent would do it, but it was just odd. It was odd. So once all of this hits the news and people find out that the angel father was actually a devil in disguise, I mean, what the hell was wrong with him? So some people said, yeah, sure, you could you could chalk it up to his hardships. You could say he was bullied. He had this genetic condition that was so rare. But that doesn't mean anything. There's a saying that goes, many people get hurt and bullied, but only few become bullies themselves. So during the angel father's trial, Kim's dad completely breaks down. And he said, my wife and I really don't want to even stay at home because we're in so much pain. We're afraid of even seeing our own child's things in the house. We keep asking ourselves, how much pain must have Kim felt at the time? My heart feels like it's being torn apart. I thought about how she might have wanted to see us in that moment for us to save her. And I asked the court to sentence Lee and his daughter to death for my dead daughter. They must be sentenced to death and can only atone for their crimes by being executed. The court listened, in part. They sentenced Lee to death, 
and since Amanda was only 14, she was giving six years in a juvenile facility. You would think that this is the end, but no, because Lee never gives up. He appealed his sentence. He wrote a 100-page letter to his lawyer and family, which was just this one massive woo-is-me sob story so that he could get less time. But for some reason, it worked. The judge overturned his death penalty and commuted it to life in prison. And Amanda's sentence was reduced from six years to just four years in prison. The judge said that they believe Amanda did not want to kill her best friend, that none of it was intentional. As for Lee, they believe it was intentional, but they felt that the judge's death sentence was too harsh, considering that he had a daughter that would need him. So instead, he would spend the rest of his life in prison. And of course, Lee went on a whole rant about how this all happened because he was born with a genetic condition. And you know what's annoying me? And it's not because I'm able-bodied, but because do you know how many people out there in the world are not able-bodied and they have not once done a single thing to cause anybody else harm? So don't sit there and say, that's why. Like, that's such a horrendous excuse and it's just a huge disservice to a whole community of amazing people that would never hurt someone. It's crazy because, yes, he has this disease, yeah. but he was the proving thing that the society are so kind to you yes and he you turn a disadvantage into a huge success in life yes but instead you know you took advantage of it over and over and over and, and turned now into you want to evil it. yeah exactly how are you you can't say that exactly it's like literally people gave you everything yeah and they like really felt for you and they were so good to you like yeah. the kindness of the nation really showed in this story and they were betrayed yeah it's just so frustrating. He said that his condition gave him obsessiveness with his appearance, which is why he spent so much of the donation money on himself. That's what he said. He said his experience being bullied made him yearn for power, and the declining wealth of his family made him want to return to the good old days. Um, what? <laughs> like, that's, that's how he apologized for being a predator who tricked 14-year-old girls to come over and held them hostage and forced them into sex work and potentially might have been the direct or indirect cause of at least three deaths that we know of. But like, my past is so sad. But the sick part of all of this is that Lee knew what he was doing. He was so cunning and so manipulative. The reason that he chose girls 14 through 20 is because in Korea, there's this law. If you commit a crime against someone 13 and younger, the punishment is automatically doubled. The cutoff is 14. You'll get the same time for anyone that's 14 versus 24 as a victim. Just get the regular punishment. So it was a really sad day for Korean citizens. Even the ones that were on the fence about the death penalty, I feel like a lot of it made it a special case in their hearts. Like, this one's okay. Maybe we can put this one to death. Because of just how horrible, like this story really made people lose humanity. And it made people not want to donate to people who genuinely needed it. Because you just didn't know. It just created this, this environment of skepticism and not wanting to be sympathetic. Kim's dad heartbreakingly said, Lee makes me feel sick, and I regret not killing the beast myself. Could it really be that just some crocodile tears is all it takes to reduce someone's sentence? Hell is empty. All the devils are here. And that is the story of Muller Daddy. It's just infuriating. I don't know what to say. I'm sorry I got so riled up at the end. But let me know your thoughts on this case. And I will see you guys on Wednesday for the main episode. Bye.